it is kind of possible to hack into almost anything. Google is effectively a $500 a year service because that's the value of the data that you're providing. This is not about, you know, listening in on your cell phone conversation. This is about surveilling the activities of somebody who's either thinking about breaking the law or has actually broken it. People who say uh, they don't care about privacy because they've got nothing to hide haven't really thought too deeply about the issues because what they're really saying is that I don't care about this right. Hey everyone, welcome back to this week's episode of Not a Savior. I'm your host, Melissa. This week we have with us Aaron Gluck-Fowler, who's a Rhodes Scholar at the Oxford Internet Institute. His research focuses on government surveillance, social movements, and cybersecurity public policy. He has researched issues of human rights and civil liberties in a digital age for the American Civil Liberties Union, Harvard University's Berkman Klein Center, among others. Aaron has led advocacy campaigns in Canada to reform government surveillance laws. Today we're going to be talking about some of these issues as well as Aaron's own work in the field. Um, so I thought we could begin by going over the basics. Despite there having been significant media coverage on issues of cybersecurity and linkers over the past couple years, a lot of people, including myself, actually know very little about what government surveillance entails. So can you t- actually spell out what government surveillance is and how it concretely impacts our lives? Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, so I think the most important thing to note about surveillance today is how it differs from historical types of surveillance. Traditionally, the government may have used informants to collect information on citizens. Uh, Then that progressed to forms of surveillance like telephone tapping, where governments could listen in on individual conversations. But today, surveillance is very different from those historical examples. Now, surveillance has a large scope and it has a large scale. So on the scope side, more data that we generate is captured by surveillance. Our lives are increasingly mediated by the internet, including social media. Um, We send pictures, we look up things online, and this creates lots of data that the government can use to surveil citizens, lots of data that corporations can use to analyze and use for predictions to sell things to people better. Um, And then on the scale note, there's just a lot more data collected. Um, new information and communications technologies like the internet often have different choke points where lots of data flows through. So by putting a tap, say, on a fiber optic cable where most of the world's internet travels through, governments can now access a lot of data. Um, and modern techniques like, like big data analysis allow people to analyze that data. Uh, so yeah, I think it's most important to note that there's more life that can be captured, more types of social interaction that can be captured online. And that type of data could also be connected to others, other forms of data uh, to draw inferences or to help the government understand what's happening in the lives of their citizens. Why do people advocate for surveillance and why do people advocate against it? So people that advocate against surveillance typically point to the different harms that surveillance implicates. Surveillance often affects the ability for people to organize collectively. 
it affects the ability of people to freely express themselves, that privacy researchers often point to a chilling effect that surveillance has, that when people think that they're being watched, they act in different ways. And this has collective harms, that when people can't feel like they can freely express themselves, test new ways of thinking, uh, associate with others, organize collectively without the threat of government coercion, they change their behavior. Uh, and obviously that changes social progress, it changes the ability of people to feel like they can change society. Um, people generally advocate for surveillance, not out of some malicious intent to put everyone under control and to create a tightly ordered future where everything is predictable. Usually it stems from a concern to make society more safe. Um, but I think what these people often ignore is how the pursuit of security through surveillance in one respect impacts other types of security. Um, that through the pursuit of national security, through the pursuit of trying to catch potential bad guys, uh, other forms of security become implicated. People don't feel like they are personally secure and this has harms. Um, We'll discuss. Yeah. Uh, so you've sort of already touched on this in that answer, but to what extent can or could government surveillance have an effect on people's ability or willingness to protest? How do fears or concerns about surveillance affect civic behavior? Could you flesh that out a little bit more for us? Sure. So there's lots of research that indicates that chilling effects do actually exist. Uh, there's a study done here at Oxford that found that people become less inclined to search for information related to terrorism because they feel that that may throw up the flag where they'll come under personal suspicion. And this has an effect on uh, just intellectual development, that people are less inclined to pursue maybe controversial lines of research or pursue um, different types of investigations that they think may draw suspicion to themselves. Um, and historically, we've seen that surveillance has also been used against social movements. Uh, it's been used against any suspect minority group that the government feels threatened by. Um, and surveillance has been present in the civil rights movement. It's been present in the Idle No, no More movement in Canada. Uh, it's present in the Black Lives Matter movement. Have we lost our ability to negotiate our privacy in this landscape of increasing surveillance? And are people like Snowden helping us reclaim it? So I think the types of privacy harms that are implicated by modern surveillance techniques are very difficult to understand. That privacy is often seen as this esoteric value. Um, it's rooted in liberal ways of thinking, and it's not very easy to conceptualize. So people like Snowden, I think, make it much more concrete. They bring to light examples um, of government wrongdoing that implicate people's privacy, and they allow the public to better understand how these very secretive programs implicate this very esoteric concept of privacy. Um, and following the Snowden revelations, I think the biggest impact that they had was um, the information that they revealed 
was often used as a basis for multiple lawsuits against intelligence agencies uh, in Canada and the United States and the United Kingdom. And these lawsuits, uh, some of which are ongoing, have led to judges concluding that the surveillance programs that are, implica- that are implemented by um, intelligence agencies were illegal and did infringe on the right to privacy, among other rights. So ideally, people like Snowden shouldn't have to exist, that we shouldn't have to rely on whistleblowers to bring light to these violations of privacy, to these abuses of government power. But until there are rigorous oversight systems implemented, people like Snowden do play a very important role. So when talking about surveillance, I think a lot of people will say something to the effect of, I have nothing to hide, I don't care if they go through my phone or through my computer or through my messages. But there's this quote by Snowden that says something to the effect of saying that you don't care about privacy because you have nothing to hide is like saying you don't care about free speech because you have nothing to say. So I'm wondering why do you think we should care about privacy? Sure. So what Snowden is doing in that quote is positioning the right to privacy as having collective benefits. That it's not just about whether your privacy is being violated. It's about privacy on a macro level allows for social progress. Privacy on a macro level allows people to organize. It allows people to express themselves. It allows people to set boundaries in their lives as they see fit. Uh, And I think that's the most important takeaway from the right to privacy is that it enables broader social functions. It's not just about whether your privacy is being violated. It's about whether the privacy of the people that are advocating for social change and advocating for better conditions that they're subjected to, whether they'll be able to self-determine, whether they'd be able to self-organize, and whether they'd be whether they feel empowered to come to the public and articulate those harms without fear of government coercion. The issue of surveillance is often spoken about in relation to threats of terrorism. So they're seen as like these two opposites where um, you know, we need surveillance if we don't want terrorism. Uh, and I want to talk a bit more about the implications of injecting fear into the conversation of surveillance and the implications that the employment of this emotion has um, in justifying government action. Yeah, so there, there's a political analysis to be done here on the different incentives that political institutions have to either prioritize addressing terrorism or prioritizing addressing the right to privacy. Politicians have to get reelected, and threats to terrorism, um, threats of terrorism, are often construed as being very immediate, very pressing, um, requiring politicians to act on impending danger. And every politician will try to limit immediate future harm. But the more insidious harms that result from those actions, like gradual erosion to privacy, are more difficult to conceptualize and don't fit into those narrative uh, and very narrow election promises that politicians may be making. So I, I think it's important that whenever fear is being injected into these debates, for it to not have a paralyzing effect, that we need rigorous evidence-based research that shows whether there is a legitimate threat. And if we do try to address that threat, what are the harms of the policies that will be implicated? Um, Now, most policies that are used to address the threat of terrorism, lots of research has indicated, 
are pretty ignorant of the root causes of terrorism. They don't address poverty. They don't address racism. They don't address how violent foreign intervention may provide a breeding ground for terrorism. So I think in these public discussions where fear is often used as a way to get votes or is used as a way to push forward policies that the public would otherwise reject, collectively we have to take a step back and rigorously evaluate the extent of the harm and the extent of the threat and always balance that by consideration of current security needs by people that are suffering from poverty, by people that are suffering from deteriorating welfare systems, by people that are suffering from environmental damage. There are lots of different types of security that we have to be considering. And the terrorist threat in particular, although obviously it is a security concern, we have to balance. We have to balance it by considering those other types of security. Obama pardoned Chelsea Manning at the end of his presidency. What do you think about this? Well, I think it's obviously a great thing what Chelsea Manning revealed had very um, important implications. Um, she exposed lots of government wrongdoing. But I think it's also important to contextualize that act of pardoning within Obama's broader strategy of pursuing whistleblowers. That the Obama administration went after whistleblowers under the Espionage Act more than double the amount of times that all previous administrations uh, went after whistleblowers. So all, although the pardoning of Chelsea Manning is obviously laudable, um, we, we do have to consider how it was an anomaly in this broader strategy, in this broader deterioration of the freedom of the press. Why is the news cycle dominated by surveillance in the American context? Does surveillance happen to the same extent in Canada or in other countries? And if it does, why aren't we hearing about it? So surveillance absolutely does happen in Canada. Uh, Canada and the United States, United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand are part of this collective intelligence organization called the Five Eyes. And most of the programs that are implemented under the Five Eyes jurisdiction happen in all of those countries. Uh, also other countries, part of the Ten Eyes and the Thirty Eyes and so on. So most of the programs that Snowden revealed uh, although they were labeled NSA documents, Canadian intelligence agencies and UK intelligence agencies had a hand in it. Now, why this isn't covered in the media, I think that requires a broader media analysis. But my inclination would be to say that people in the United States are much more attentive to these harms um, that violate constitutional rights, whereas people in Canada may be a bit more complicit in that regard. That, for example, uh, over the years of the Harper administration, there wasn't this type of shock doctrine where rights were suspended overnight. There was gradual deterioration of rights through bureaucratic institutional processes. But of course, we have to be equally attentive to those gradual deterioration of rights um, to, as compared to uh, the more visual and immediately apparent. I want to talk a bit about how personal politics factor into what information is leaked. John Assange is an example of someone who is known to hold misogynistic views. He's been accused of sexual assault. And some speculate that he has sympathies for far-right leaders in politics that inform what information he chooses to leak. 
So my question is, to what extent do the personal politics of whistleblowers matter in a larger debate about surveillance? Can we distinguish between the institutional intentions of an organization like WikiLeaks from the personal values of its leaders? And what are the ramifications of drawing this distinction? So I think in the case of WikiLeaks, it's very clear that the politics of the organization are inseparable from the personal politics of Julian Assange. WikiLeaks is Julian Assange. So you have to conflate um, what WikiLeaks does with his personal politics. But that said, I think it's also important to look systemically about what the role of an organization like WikiLeaks is. It does have an essential role. It does have a role that when change can't be um, pursued through traditional institutional processes, through internal whistleblowing processes, there should be media organizations that can serve as an outlet for people to shed light on government abuses of power. Whether WikiLeaks is the best organization to do that, I think what we saw in the last, last election cycle indicates that it's not, but that kind of organization has an essential role. One of the things that we're trying to accomplish with this podcast is to challenge the ways in which changemakers or activists are idealized and turned into heroes. You know, we believe that it's more productive to speak about collective action instead of pinning our hopes on a single individual. But it seems to me that in the conversation surrounding cybersecurity, there tends to be a polarized debate between those that maintain that whistleblowers are heroes versus those that believe that they are traitors. And I'm wondering what nuances you think what nuances, if any, are lost in this polarized conversation? So when discussions around surveillance are framed around the personal motivations of those who bring surveillance programs to light, I think it detracts from the substance of the leaks that and the substance of the programs that they're actually revealing. Uh, although it is important to have a discussion on motivations, uh, particularly so in the U.S., because under, um, for example, the uh, law that Edward Snowden is being tried under, the Espionage Act, you can't raise a public interest defense. It doesn't matter what your intentions were and whether the leaks actually did have a public impact. So these public debates are a key way for uh, the public to learn how to negotiate collective conceptions of justice and um, what what type of retribution we think is appropriate for individuals like that. And that discussion absolutely should be had, but it should never detract from discussing the substance uh, of what Edward Snowden revealed. Um, and that's large, unaccountable, often illegal government surveillance programs. And we should be resisting media frames that try to reduce the discussion to personal intentions, that there is this broader system that we should be discussing. What else do you think is left out of the mainstream conversation about surveillance? So surveillance isn't just an individual act that government does or that a corporation does. Fundamentally, it's about social sorting. It's about classifying populations into certain categories and manipulating those populations towards a certain end. And in that way, surveillance, it's always connected to broader struggles. It's connected to broader struggles for racial justice. It's connected to broader struggles for economic justice. And surveillance is often used as a way to undermine those struggles. 
So it, it's always important to understand that there are different nexuses that are implicated by surveillance. Corporations and governments collaborate with surveillance, and this is mutually reinforcing. Surveillance is related to economic neoliberalization and precarity. Uh, it doesn't emerge from a vacuum. Um, and in looking at government surveillance programs and harms that are implicated by surveillance, we should always be considering how these are connected to broader social harms. I want to shift gears a bit and talk more about how you went from being an engineering student at McGill to becoming interested in the topic of surveillance. What was it about this subject in particular that, that captivated you? So I like to study dichotomies between really hard technical things and abstract things that those technologies implicate. So when I was reading the Snowden documents and I saw that intelligence agencies worldwide were using technologies that could tap a fiber optic cable, that could data mine a large trove um, of personal information and use that to draw inferences about a population. I thought it'd be interesting to explore also what the implications of these technologies were, not just on a technical level, which my engineering background was training me to do. Uh, and since then, I've kind of explored everything between these two poles from the very technical materiality of a certain technology, all the way to the very broad esoteric values and implications that a technology may have. And within that space, it's fascinating to study. How do you plan on, on engaging with this issue in the future? So, like I was saying before, surveillance is connected to broader issues of power. And what I'm studying right now is the broader issue of how different types of security compete with each other. Now, the government may be thinking that the ideal way to be administering social services is through the lens of national security. Uh, that the greatest threat towards its citizens is protecting it from adversarial threats. But obviously there are other types of security that we should be focusing on and that the government should be focusing on. And I'm really interested in how in public policy debates, different types of security and different discourses of security compete with each other and eventually gain prominence over one another. Uh, and in particular, right now I'm studying how this type of government rationality of wanting to control emerging insecurity and governing populations through governing emerging insecurity rather than actual present security needs emerge. So I'm kind of taking a genealogical approach to doing that. How can people protect themselves from government surveillance? I think a lot of people who, you know, become interested in this quickly feel completely helpless. So the most important thing to note is that it's not your fault <laughs> that these technologies often aren't built in ways that protect you by default from government or corporate surveillance. Because like we are speaking about before, there are certain incentive structures that lead to security not being the default in these technologies. But that said, there's a generation of technologists and hackers and coders that are working to make these technologies secure by default. Uh, my hope is that the next generation of personal computing devices and social networks will have these security features by default so that the average citizen doesn't have to feel like their information is going to be hacked or doesn't have to feel like someone can pursue them um, and surveil them through these platforms. 
Uh, but until then, there's lots of great resources that people can use. Uh, the Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto released this uh, planner recently called the Security Planner that based on the individual threats that you face and everyone has different threats that are relevant to them, uh, they recommend different security tools that you could use to protect yourself. Uh, and the Electronic Frontier Foundation also has a really great guide called Surveillance Self-Defense that provides an overview of the different tools that you could use and add onto your browser or onto your email or onto your phone to protect yourself against surveillance. What does productive action or activism look like in the context that we're speaking of? Well, in, in this field, many different areas are implicated. Uh, government surveillance has implications in political science, has implications in sociology, has implications in communications, in public policy, in the law. So there isn't really one approach to activism in this context, that a diversity of approaches should be used and should be welcomed and are, of course, part of the broader strategy, not just against surveillance, but against all forms of injustice. Thanks so much for being with us, Aaron. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, if you have any young advocates or change makers who you think we should talk to, please nominate them by emailing melissagodant21 at gmail.com. That's M-E-L-I-S-S-A. G-O-D-I-N-2-1 at gmail.com. If you like our show, please remember to rate us on iTunes. You can also follow us on Instagram at Not A Savior or check out our website at www.notasavior.weebly.com.